Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the brand new shiny trade deal between the UK and the EU, the EU-UK Trade and Cooperation Agreement, or the TCA. It went into force on January 1st, 2021. Side note, come on, trade people, please give me some better acronyms here. Obviously, this trade deal is super important. We've been waiting on it for a very, very long time. The text of the thing is 1,246 pages long, including all the annexes. It was published only a few days before it was actually supposed to come into effect, which is not a whole lot of time to scrutinize it properly. If the Trump administration, for example, had done that to Congress, they would not have been happy. We now have this deal, which has gone into effect, and that means a lot more non-tariff barriers for trade between the EU and the UK. Any reasonable economic assessment is that this will leave the UK poorer than it would have been had it stayed in the EU. This deal is better than no deal at all, certainly. There aren't tariffs and there aren't quotas. And Britain has been able to agree to to some important economic relationship with the EU. But that's obviously a pretty low bar economically. In this episode, we are going to hear from quite a few different Brexit experts. Brexperts. Uh, I can't have just made that up, but um, if I have, then well done me. Um, First up is David Hennig of the European Centre for International Political Economy. We asked him what each side wanted from the deal. With the UK, the EU's priority number one is not to make leaving seem like a good deal, which means protecting the single market, no cherry picking, no special access that's better than anybody else gets, certainly no access that seems better than being a member. That's quite defensive. So there are some slightly more offensive interests. There is make sure we retain as much access to fish as possible because those member states that have fishing fleets are going to be very upset if we don't keep tariff-free trade if we can, because we quite like that, in fact. And also, this being the EU, always keep our rules. Basically, the EU, the Brussels effect, we want the world to be following our rules because that's a, a competitive advantage for our businesses. So if we can sign the UK up for those, that's great as well. But that's probably not the first priority because the EU will assume that will happen anyway. The Brussels Effect, and Anu Bradford at at Columbia Law School has a great book on this. This is the idea that the EU can influence standards in countries beyond its borders. And that's great for European businesses because they then only have to follow one set of rules to serve two different markets. And and that's to their competitive advantage. The EU's other offensive interests included protecting European agriculture and defending geographical indications. Those are rules that say that you can only sell the the sparkling wine champagne if it comes from champagne in France. The EU also did not want a land border in Ireland. And of those two, it pretty much got what it wanted. It, It got geographic indications and Northern Ireland sorted out in the withdrawal agreement agreed a while ago. So when this new deal came out, there really weren't very many surprises there. We asked David to summarize what the UK wanted. 
the UK's priorities in uh, in these trade negotiations with the EU are a bit hard to discern. We know they wanted sovereignty and regulatory independence, but it wasn't entirely clear what they meant by that. We're pretty sure they wanted zero tariffs because some major car manufacturers, among others Nissan, had said, we're going to leave the UK if you don't have those. The UK wanted to regain full control of fishing waters. The UK was pretty unhappy about signing up to any EU rules and regulations, such as what's called the level playing field, fair competition. This is minimum standards of labour and environment and potentially going beyond that to have to align with future EU rules in those areas, in labour and the environment and also in state aid. The UK absolutely did not want to sign up to the European Court of Justice, uh, which could have direct rulings on the UK. On the other hand, the UK did quite like the idea of joining some big EU programmes, such as Horizon, which is a big research funding programme, which comes with ECJ. So there's a little bit of confusion there. So essentially, the UK did want to do exactly what the EU wanted to protect against, which was pick the bits of the single market that we really liked and keep access to them and not have to pay the price for it. This level playing field thing was a massive problem in the last months and and weeks of the negotiations. The EU's line was essentially, look, we're worried about you slashing your standards to undercut our producers. We're worried about you subsidizing your industries to, to give them some sort of unfair advantage. So we want you to follow our rules. And if you don't, then you're going to face trade barriers. And, and that's what will make sure that the, the playing field is level. The Brits obviously wanted the the flexibility to do whatever they wanted, consequence-free. We talk about trade deals being win-win, and and obviously this is better than a no-deal Brexit. But deals also involve sets of compromises. So who did best relative to their objectives? Look, at at a high level, actually both sides got their headlines because the EU got the protection of the single market didn't allow the the cherry picking and the UK got sovereignty or the ability to set our own rules. But once you dig beneath that, what you find is that in order to get those things, the UK had to give way on much of the detail below it. So on fish, yes, we have more control of our waters, but actually we had to let the EU fleets continue to have more access than really we would have liked. We have to follow more of the level playing field rules than really we would have liked. There is a reference to the European Court of Justice because otherwise we wouldn't have been allowed to participate in the Horizon programme. So in the end, the EU got their top lines. The UK also got some of the top lines, but really had to concede on the detail. The EU didn't really have to concede on the detail. So let's talk about some of this detail. And first, let's talk a bit more about these level playing field provisions. In the negotiations, the the EU basically said, look, you can follow our rules exactly when it comes to things like environment, labor, and, and subsidies. And if you want to deviate, we're going to put tariffs on you. 
And that is essentially what they agreed, although the language isn't quite as stark. The EU had wanted something called dynamic alignment. So not only would the UK have to follow the current subsidy rules, it would also have to follow future ones. That's not in the deal. Uh, instead, there's a commitment to maintaining some high-level principles. And similarly, with labor and the environment, there's a commitment to maintain certain principles when it comes to protections, but, but not to stick to EU rules to the letter. What is there is an agreement that the EU can impose tariffs if there is a breach, and it can do it unilaterally. So the idea is that they can withdraw some market access benefit given in the agreement if it can show that some UK regulation is affecting trade and investment flows. We asked Sam Lowe of the Center for European Reform who would be making these complaints. How easy is this thing to use? And are there legal safeguards to, to stop arbitrary tariff fights from popping up? It's largely state to state, of course, but state to state is driven by the concerns of uh, 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 constituencies within uh, the EU. And and whilst these rebalancing tools are unilateral, they are then subject to arbitration. So if you, if you put in place tariffs because you thought that the UK had decided to get rid of the industrial emissions directive or something environmental like that, uh, then uh, the, the, you'd still then have to be able to demonstrate that it did impact on trade and competition when the UK brought arbitration uh, brought it to arbitration. But then, 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 then sitting under all of this is then a review clause. So uh, uh, after four years, it's possible for one of the parties to ask that the agreement is reviewed in its entirety to assess whether it's still... Uh, has a correct balance of rights and obligations. And off the basis of this, it could lead to suspension of huge, large elements of the agreement, although I, I suspect it would never get that far. Hmm, maybe. Hopefully it would never get that far, but I'm worried. There's there's a lot of unknowns, actually, in practice as to how this mechanism would work, solely because it's it's quite unique. Actually, in, ter in terms of what's within it, you know, we're, we're looking at some of these provisions and there's actually a lines within there where we don't know what it means. <laughs> so we're going to need, a, we need some further explanation. So, for example, there's, there's a specific provision which maybe indicates that rebalancing measures can breach the par a party's WTO MFN commitments. So, for example, rather than just reimposing MFN tariffs, you could go beyond that. And... I don't think that's what the provision means, but it certainly could be what it means. So at some point, we're going to need that uh, articulated uh, more clearly. If you think about anti-dumping duties, where you can get tariffs of over a thousand percent, those tariffs could go really, really high. So I do think this is potentially worrying. Here is Alan Beatty of the FT to calm you down. There's quite a common belief that the level playing field provisions that the UK has signed up to uh, and the EU has signed up to on labour, the environment, and climate change and state aid will essentially keep the British lion chained up uh, by the regulatory ringmaster in Brussels. To be honest, I kind of think this is overdone and here's why. Compared with the current rules, certainly compared with the current state aid rules, there's quite a high burden of proof that has been set um, to show that uh, state aid is distortive and that is actually damaging trade and investment between the EU and the UK. Historically, in trade deals, that's been quite hard to show, and panels that, that arbitrate this um, have been quite reluctant to rule that um, uh, any particular uh, programme or any particular rule is distortive. 
For that reason, unless the UK really goes out of its way to provoke fights, which of course it might do, I'm not sure the level playing field provisions will actually get a lot of use. I'm not sure they really will be the main impediment or the main friction between UK and EU um, relations into the future. So there's some scepticism there that, that these provisions will be used very much. Let's now turn to another bit of the deal that was interesting. David mentioned that the UK wanted cars to be able to go into the EU without any tariffs. They also had another ask related to our favourite rules of origin. Quick recap, tight rules of origin mean that you need a lot of UK and EU content in a, in a product for it to qualify for zero tariffs in a trade deal. Liberal rules of origin mean that you can source lots of parts from Asia and have lots of Asian content, for example, and you'll still get the zero tariffs uh, included as part of the trade deal. Here's Sam. So, so, so at the beginning of the negotiations, the UK requested very liberal rules of origin because the UK is largely an intermediary producer. We don't create that much value domestically. We needed some flexibility if the UK exporters were to qualify for tariff-free trade under an agreement. And we asked that the EU allow for all inputs sourced from countries with which both the UK and the EU has a free trade agreement to count as local for the purpose of meeting uh, the rules of origin provisions. But the, the EU rejected that because it would be a liberalisation of rules of origin far beyond anything that has been done before and anything the EU was comfortable with. So it, the asks end up of the UK ended up being narrowed to very specific sectors and particularly batteries and electric vehicles where there is a long-standing issue that electric vehicles don't actually qualify for the EU's free trade agreements because the batteries are always sourced from Asia. They make up a huge proportion of the value of the car and it means that the exporters from the EU are unable to meet a 55% local content threshold because they just can't. So there was an issue here and the EU actually engaged on this issue with the UK and they've agreed in the agreement for uh, the provisions specifically for electric vehicles to be phased in over time the and for rules of origin to start off quite liberal before tightening. So to begin with, you can have quite a lot of foreign content, but in five, six years' time, uh, that's not going to be the case and it tightens quite substantially. This means that for existing investments in the UK, plants making electric vehicles might might be okay. But thinking about future investments... Maybe you would still want to make cars in the UK if the car manufacturers can somehow increase the share of, of the total value of, of the car that's made there. But if that's too hard, then in the future, it, it may make sense to just put most of that production into the EU. So one thing Sam said is that this isn't the EU trying to screw over the UK specifically. It's part of a broader industrials policy that's trying to shift the electric vehicle supply chain away from Asia and then into the EU, a kind of onshoring strategy. So some parallels there with what the United States tried to do in the NAFTA renegotiations, but a different way. Sam had other examples of things that the UK wanted but weren't in the deal. Another area the UK failed to get what it wants is, uh, is on mutual recognition of conformity assessment. So this is the question of whether UK-based testing uh, 
bodies can continue to certify that products produced in the UK meet EU standards. For example, if you produce a medical device in the UK uh, to EU standards and it requires third-party certification, can you get that done in the UK or do you need to get that done in the EU? And this was a bit of an odd one in that the EU has actually signed up to lots of agreements that allow this, including with Australia, New Zealand and the US. So what the UK was asking for here was not unprecedented. But the EU rejected it and the UK didn't get what it wanted. So, and, and if you ask the EU why they rejected it, it's actually, if you talk to people there, the, the lines are usually quite mercantilist. They just sort of say, well, we didn't want our testing centres to be offshore to the UK. There's quite a lot of jobs involved. We prefer they were onshore. You know, it's, it's actually quite crude trade politics rather than anything sort of uh, uh, anything more than that. So in the case of conformity assessments and, and, and testing, I guess the geography of being so close to the EU seems to have worked against the UK. Next up is Emily Rees, also at the European Centre for International Political Economy based in Brussels. Emily is an agriculture guru, and, and we wanted to know what this deal would mean for food trading between Great Britain and the EU. Before, rules and regulations were harmonised across the whole of the EU. So as long as you met British rules on things like animal health, animal welfare, slaughter recommendations, that that kind of thing, you could send your product into the EU without any extra certificates or inspections. Now, your lamb producer in Great Britain will need to get a a health certificate from an official veterinarian of the United Kingdom, uh, pre-notify that into the European Tracy system, which is the trade certification system for food, animals and plants. And when that consignment arrives at the European border control post, well, there are a number of other checks. So um, document checks, in particular certificate checks, uh, to see if it's the correct one for the load. And then the veterinarians on the importing countryside can then decide if they want to put in a physical check, which can involve a number of uh, laboratory analyses just to see if that lamb is safe for European consumers. All this paperwork can be expensive. Those certificates have a price tag. Uh, They can be anywhere from around €100 or £95 per consignment. So if you need various certificates for one consignment, that bill can add up pretty quickly. If you look at the deal, the UK seems to be trying harder than the EU to make importing easy, at least at first. So while the EU is applying all of its import controls from day one, Great Britain is phasing its in over six months. It means that in the first days, the goods that are coming in from the European Union won't uh, need to transit via uh, one of those official border control posts. And that's particularly important for exports coming in from the Republic of Ireland, uh, which have different logistical routes than the ones which are currently mapped for international imports. For instance, currently, uh, all the products would have to go through uh, Liverpool, which would be the the port which is closest to the Republic of Ireland, whereas we know that um, those imports Imports come in from um, other parts of the UK. When it comes to um, the question of the health certificates, the catch certificates, the plant certificates, um, all of those certificates won't be necessary on day one. They're going to be phased in um, as of the 1st of April. We asked Emily what she was most surprised by. So what I've really found most surprising in in reading the sanitary and phytosanitary chapter of this agreement is that on the one hand, 
The text goes very little beyond what you'd expect under the World Trade Organization's SPS agreement. So we really are falling back onto third country level trading terms, which is very surprising considering especially that the UK is so reliant on the EU for its food. On the other hand, we find this first-class language on a number of emerging issues, these 21st century issues such as antimicrobial resistance, animal welfare um, and sustainable food systems. So you've got this very advanced language, which is mostly on a corporation basis. Um, but when it comes to the hard issues, we really are on a very basic agreement. I want to go back to this question of, of asymmetry between the UK and the EU arrangements. We spoke to Anna Yezhevska of TradeAndBorders.com, a customs and trade consultancy, about this. Companies importing into the UK from the EU have the option to defer customs declarations, safety and security declarations, as well as SPS formalities for up to six months for some of these obligations. What that means in practice is that, for example, a UK company can bring goods in from the EU. It is not required to submit a, a declaration, a formal, formal declaration to customs authorities, but is only required to enter these goods in their own internal commercial records, which is obviously something that no one's really going to check or, or verify whether it was done correctly or not. This is Obviously, a significant easement and gives UK companies time to adjust to the new reality, but it can also lead to non-compliance as companies uh, might simply not be aware of what their responsibilities are. While you can postpone submitting customs declarations, from the moment you start importing into the UK or anywhere else for that matter, you are responsible for collecting and keeping customs data, for ensuring that the goods are imported correctly, that they meet rules of origin and therefore can be traded under preferential tariffs under, under the trade deal, the EU-UK trade deal. While you might not need to submit the information right away, technically, the legal liability starts from the moment you, you import goods into the customs territory of, of wherever you're importing them into. So again, here, we might not see the effects right away, but in six months, when companies are required to submit the first full declaration, when customs formalities become mandatory, this is when we'll find out whether companies were able to find the right commodity code, determine the customs value of the product, and determine origin. So it is likely that there will be a high degree of non-compliance. Some of it will perhaps be intentional, but a lot of it will result from lack of awareness or extended deadlines and trying to collect all the relevant information retrospectively. A lot will also depend on how this is implemented, or rather, enforced by customs authorities. Anna told us that companies could learn the, the hard way that this deal is not quite the tariff and quota-free agreement that they had thought. Say an input is imported into the EU from China, combines to make something else, and then sent on to the UK. That might not qualify for tariff-free treatment if there's too much Chinese content to pass the rules of origin requirements. So I think what surprised me the most was the fact that there weren't any simplifications for traders, particularly in terms of rules of origin, that this deal was literally implemented within a week. And the traders on the 1st of January were being asked to comply with rules of origin that were published on the 26th of December in order to 
get that preferential treatment under under this deal. And this is obviously completely unprecedented, and this is not how trade deals are normally implemented. If if we take an example of a company that has never imported or exported before, so so a company that has been trading only within the EU, a company like this might not might still not fully understand customs, the basics of customs, uh, customs declarations, safety and security declarations, and all these forms and and data that it needs to provide. And with this last-minute deal, there's another layer of, of difficulty, uh, rules of origin, another layer of, of formalities and, and, and paperwork. The next few months are going to involve a pretty steep learning curve for a lot of businesses trading goods. But now, let's talk about services. This is an area the UK is, is very good at. It's a big part of the economy. And therefore, it is disappointing that the deal didn't cover it that well. Uh, Britain will have access to the single market that is nowhere near as good as what it had before. If you have a a professional qualification and then you are trading a service, uh, so you might be an architect or a pharmacist, this deal is not great for you. Here's Sam Lowe again. So so one of the things missing from the agreement that the UK would have liked there to be included is mutual recognition of professional qualifications. So crudely speaking, whilst a member of the EU, if you had a qualification recognised in the UK, it would near automatically be recognised in other member states, subject to certain terms and conditions. And the UK proposed that this near enough continue, again, with some qualifications largely around uh, accepting that there wouldn't be temporary recognition for fly-in, fly-out Visits, But the EU rejected this. And one of the reasons they rejected this is the EU actually finds it quite difficult to negotiate mutual recognition professional qualification agreements, because it's not an area in which the EU has sole competence. It's It's a competence that's shared with the member states, by which I mean these qualifications are often granted by member states or not even by member states, by private bodies within member states. And pulling this all together can prove quite difficult. Another big change Brits are facing is that from now on, they won't be able to live and work elsewhere in the EU. So so whilst a member of the EU, uh, the UK benefited from freedom of movement, which allowed UK citizens to live and work across the EU without any real constraints. So now if we're just looking at... uh, the ability of UK citizens to work in the EU, they face many more constraints. So if we take just one area, so temporary business travel. So if you're a UK business traveller looking to do some things in the EU, you at the moment you will benefit from being able to do that for 90 days in every 180, which is useful. But there are big limits on what you're actually able to do on that visa. So you might be able to have meetings and and consult with people. But the moment you start selling something to someone, you're probably going to be breaching uh, the terms of your visa. And this is one of those areas where I think there's going to be what I refer to as accidental illegality. Lots of people are just going to fly into the EU as they did before and do what they did before, be it selling to people, uh, doing speeches and getting paid for it. And they're going to find that actually they're breaking the rules. And then there's just a question of how that's enforced. At at the strictest end, you could be banned from entering the Schengen area for a period of years or be deported or be fined. Whether that will happen or not, I'm unsure. But it's, it's going to be quite tricky to give a very particular example. Say you're a fashion model. 
and you're and you're going to a show in Milan. Actually, now if, as a fashion model, if you want to go to a show in Milan in which you're paid for, you're going to need to get a work visa. However, you could go to Milan beforehand to meet people, make connections under the terms of just a normal uh, temporary business visa, where you just turn up at the border and you and and you're, and you're let in. So there's all of these new hurdles that need to be navigated, and I think there's just going to be a lot of uncertainty around. Uh, what people are able to do or not able to do for quite a while yet. Note to self, check whether podcasting is allowed. What about data sharing? Uh, What happens if you're a a British company and you've got the personal data of EU citizens on your service? Can you you just keep that? So the question of data adequacy has been... uh, kicked into next year so there's there's a temporary measure in place that allows uh, for the, the the private data of eu citizens to continue to be stored on servers in the uk uh, for for a few months into next year but then we still don't know whether the eu will grant an adequacy decision or not well it just matters because companies british companies will have on their servers lots of data lots of the personal data of eu citizens and if if they're unable to continue storing that in the UK legally, they're either going to have to move that data onto servers within the EU, which comes at a cost, or they're going to have to enter into new contractual arrangements, which again just comes with legal fees. It just makes doing business between the two parties more complicated because all of a sudden you have to establish a presence within the EU and for services firms and the like as well that can just be a bit annoying it's not doesn't necessarily stop anything from happening so long as companies prepare, but it does mean additional cost. And then the other open question is just financial services equivalents. So there's very little in the agreement on financial services. This was expected, perhaps perhaps uh, not expected to the... There was much less than even I expected in that agreement, in that the UK, the, the UK didn't even get what Canada or Japan got when it came to commitments on regulatory dialogues, although we're told that there will be more to come on that. But in terms of actual market access, that discussion is all that decision, that, that's all about financial services equivalents. Will the EU unilaterally allow the UK to, uh, firms in the UK to continue providing services cross-border uh, in the future? And the EU hasn't taken that decision yet, so we don't know. We have one final guest, Anand Menon, director of UK and a Changing Europe. We asked him, is Brexit now finally done? So a Brexit deal is done, but Brexit isn't over. And by that I mean three things. Firstly, within the deal itself, there is scope for future negotiations, whether that is within the intricate committee system that it creates about the implementation of the terms of the agreement, or whether that is the renegotiation of the fisheries deal that has been struck that is scheduled for five and a half years' time, or even the provisions made within the deal for a five-yearly review of the agreement as a whole, which will see both sides ponder whether it is working as they had wanted and expected. And secondly, there are issues where we are still waiting for decisions from the European Union. I'm thinking particularly of equivalence when it comes to financial services and of an adequacy decision when it comes to data. In both cases, the EU gets to decide by itself, but its decision will have a huge impact on how easy it is for the UK and the EU to trade with each other going forward. And third and finally, and perhaps most importantly and interestingly, 
Brexit for many Brexiters wasn't about leaving the European Union. Leaving the European Union was a means to an end rather than an end in itself. And here we come to the really interesting chapter of Brexit that we're about to start, which is how the British government makes use of Brexit and of the newfound freedoms it has made so much of to bring greater prosperity to the people of the United Kingdom. That ultimately is going to be the test of this enterprise. And that is one of many reasons why Brexit, while the formal process is over, is going to continue to haunt us for many months and years to come. That is all for Trade Talks. A big thank you to Alan Beattie of the Financial Times, Emily Reese, and David Hennig of the European Centre for International Political Economy, Sam Lowe of the Centre for European Reform, Anna Yashevska of TradeAndBorders.com, and Anand Menon of the UK in a Changing Europe. Thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade, underscore, underscore, talks. Yeah, I can't really think of like a funny ending. Brexit's just pretty sad. Well, maybe you can write a... Uh... Maybe I'll write a Brexit song. Yeah. <laughs>